Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey guys, and welcome to the Moms and Murder Podcast, a true crime podcast featuring myself, Mandy, and my dear friend, Melissa. Hi, Melissa. Hi, Mandy. How are you? I'm doing great. How are you? Another week in paradise. (laughs) Doing really well. (laughs) Absolutely. Yeah, we've been having some really crappy weather here in Florida the last, I mean, I feel like it's been an eternity that it's just been raining every single day. And like, I feel like we're living in like, I don't know. It's a Noah's Ark situation. A- another state where it rains a lot. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's like a 40 day, 40 night situation. Today it was uh, clear this morning. So that was really nice just to get outside. It was hot and muggy. Um, so I'm like mosquito prey. Mosquitoes love me. I don't think it's because I'm sweet because I'm really not. But they just like, if there's a mosquito, it just comes like beelines right to me. So I'm just like the idiot outside just spraying myself in bug spray constantly and still getting attacked. And my daughter just goes out there willy nilly, nothing. And she's totally fine. It drives me bananas. But that's the thing I hate in the summer is just the muggy bugs. I hate that. Yes. Ugh. Yes, for sure. Muggy Which is bugs. great in yes. Florida. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's funny how some people are really affected by mosquitoes and some aren't. So I am also, and my youngest is um, really, I, the mosquitoes just love him. But my older son, he's the same way. He just goes outside and he never wears bug spray and he never gets bit by mosquitoes. It's the weirdest thing. Yeah. I'm so annoying because I'm like counting him the entire time I'm out there. I'm like, I still, I have seven. How many do you have? She's like, zero. I don't know what's wrong with you. <laughs> yeah. And you can just see them like hovering around your ankles and stuff. And oh, it's just awful. I hate it. I know it's like the definitely worst. one of the worst parts about summertime. And it's much worse when it's just been raining and there's so much mm-hmm. standing water everywhere. It's like it's just gross. a breeding ground for mosquitoes. So that's what we're dealing with. So that's not fun, <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah. All right. So we'll get into the episode for the week. So imagine, if you will, that you have owned your home for 17 years and you've put your heart and soul into making this a place that you really want to stay forever. And then you find out that your house is full of shocking secrets. So last month, if you are a Patreon patron, you know that we discussed the story of the Los Feliz murder house. And we had a little side discussion about whether or not we would be comfortable living in a home where a murder had taken place. And the story this week is a little bit similar to that. And it it also made me ponder this question some more because that's exactly what happened to Laura and Richard Cott of Monterey, California. And before we get into the details of the case this week, we're going to tell you a little about Monterey in this week's segment of We Googled This City. So Monterey, California is located off the coast of Central California, and as of the 2010 census, has around 27,000 residents. 
Cannery Row is this waterfront road that's in Monterey, California, and originally the road was known as Ocean View Avenue, but 13 years after John Steinbeck published his book Cannery Row, the road was renamed because of the popularity of the book and later the movie starring Deborah Winger and Nick Nolte. I mainly know Nick Nolte from Mugshots, but apparently he was in a lot of movies a long time ago, and this is one of them. I was not familiar with the movie Cannery Row, and I read a little Wikipedia thing, and I still didn't even understand the movie, but it was very, very popular there. So they ended up changing the entire name of the road for it. So John Steinbeck wasn't the only author to live around the area. The author of Treasure Island and The Strange Case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, Robert Louis Stevenson, also called the Monterey area home, which I also did not know he wrote those two books. So I'm really, I'm not doing well (laughs) with facts this week, (laughs) which is not surprising. Monterey is also the backdrop of many famous movies. I saw tons of them, but I just pulled three out. A Basic Instinct, part of uh, that movie was filmed there. We Were Soldiers and Turner and Hooch, which I always forget is a movie and that Tom Hanks was in it. So lastly, when I think of Monterey, I think of Monterey Jack Cheese. What about you, Mandy? That's like where my brain goes. Yeah, Yeah, definitely. (laughs) Which isn't surprising because I really can bring anything back to cheese. And while there are no dairy farms in the actual town of Monterey, there are some in the neighboring area of Carmel Valley, which is actually where Monterey Cheese was first available. As for the Jack and Monterey Jack, it was named after businessman David Jack. I still don't quite get the entire connection there because it's like it wasn't actually from the city. It's from the next one and a random business guy, David Jack. So, but Mandy, I have to ask. I'm not going to ask. I'm going to say my top five cheeses as rated by me, a resident cheese expert. I really do think I'm pretty good with my cheeses. So number five, Monterey Jack, mostly out of respect to the episode this week. Number four. Brie. Are you a Brie fan? Yeah, I like Brie. I don't like the enthusiasm you said that with. I (laughs) did not buy that at all. (laughs) That was like, I might as well have said cheddar there. You were really not very happy with that one. (laughs) So number three, mozzarella cheese. Specifically fine inside mozzarella sticks. What's better than a good mozzarella stick? A hot one? Oh my gosh. (laughs) This is terrible. (laughs) (laughs) so number two the cheese you get with nachos at basketball games you know they have that giant can and they just open that can and pop it in something (laughs) heat it up and serve it to you it's so good and number one the number one cheese in the world is the jokes on google this city (laughs) i am done (laughs) there wasn't a lot to work with this week there you go If you own a home or have ever thought about owning a home, finding out about the history of that home is probably something that you did not do uh, because it's something that most people really are not concerned with. Generally, when we're house hunting, we have some must-haves and maybe a wish list in mind, and this is just a very exciting time for most people. So the last thing on anyone's mind is whether or not someone died or worse was murdered in the house that they have their heart set on. Each state has different laws regarding whether or not deaths must be disclosed to potential home buyers, but almost every state requires that the prospective buyer be notified of anything in the home's history that would stigmatize the property, and this includes violent deaths. Today's episode is about the heinous discovery of human remains in the backyard of Laura and Richard Cott and the horrific story that unfolded in the aftermath. The Cots purchased the home in Monterey in 1998 after they had been renting it for 18 months and decided they wanted to make it their forever home. They paid $339,000 for the house, and this was in 1998. I looked up an inflation calculator, and this would be over half a million dollar home today. 
And oh, wow. it must just be property values in California because I did Google Street View and it does not look like a half a million dollar house for sure. So that was just really surprising to me. It's always interesting to see what you get for the money in different states yeah. and different places. Uh, so I thought that was kind of interesting. So over the years, there were, of course, little home improvement projects and a lot of time spent personalizing this home to the couple's liking. And in 2015, they decided to have some fruit trees planted in their backyard. A young landscaper named Alex Speed was working on digging the holes to plant these new trees in when he came across something that was hard and round in the ground. At first, Alec believed that it was a coconut that was buried under there, but when he got closer and inspected it more, he realized that it was actually a human skull. When he brought this to the attention of his supervisor, who was also on the property, they called the police. What had been a safe and comfortable home to the cots for 16 years had now become a crime scene. It goes without saying that the cots had many questions, and little did they know that they were about to learn much more than they could have ever expected. A forensics team was called to the property to excavate the site and locate the rest of the unidentified remains. It was determined that the body was that of a female buried face down near the fence on the property. The victim was wearing a red dress that was bunched up over her head, but she had no clothing on from the waist down. Inside the grave was a purse containing several personal items that appeared to belong to the victim. At first look, it wasn't immediately clear what the woman's cause of death was, but it was clear that she had been buried there for a very, very long time. Inside the purse, police did not locate any identification, but they did find a calendar from 1982, as well as a photo of a woman sitting on a couch. The photo was very faded and had some rips and holes in it, but the part of the picture that showed the woman's face was mostly clear. Police hoped that this photo would help them identify this woman, but other than that piece of evidence, there really wasn't a lot to go on, and the fact that it had potentially been 33 years since this woman was buried there made investigating it a whole lot trickier. Since police had so few avenues for identifying the remains, they started by looking through local missing persons cases from the 1980s that seemed like they might be a potential match. Sure enough, they discovered that there had been a woman reported missing in December of 1982, and in a stroke of luck, the file of information about this woman contained several photographs of her. Unfortunately, DNA evidence was not a thing back in the early 80s, so investigators didn't have that luxury at their fingertips and truly had to put the pieces of the puzzle together on their own. As luck would have it, when police compared the photos from the file to the photo they found in the grave with their Jane Doe, it appeared to be the same woman. Her name was Sandra Steppen, and she sometimes went by Sandra McGee. However, when it comes to prosecuting a crime, you need a lot more than a photo of someone that might look like someone else. You need real proof, and luckily for police, they had another option, dental records. When Sandra had first been reported missing, police were able to obtain her dental records to place in her file, which I think is so genius because they were just going off of a missing persons case in the 80s, right. you know, not like a homicide, anything like that, just knew that she was missing and to have the wherewithal to go ahead and grab that stuff is really great. So forensic scientists were able to compare the dental records to the victim and it confirmed what police had already suspected. The remains belonged to Sandra. This was a huge discovery and even though investigators were against all odds trying to identify the remains, it only took them one day to figure it out, which is crazy. Yes, that's so impressive for them being there as long as they were. You would think right. that they, it would take them a little bit longer to be able to track down who it was. Yeah, I was really impressed by that, that it, they figured it out pretty much right away. Yeah. 
So who was Sandra and what really were the details of her disappearance? Well, at the time that she went missing, Sandra was a 32-year-old mother of three living in Seaside, California. In the early 70s, Sandra met her future husband, Patrick, while he was stationed at Fort Ord in Monterey. The couple had three daughters, a set of twins named Gigi and Bridget, and a younger daughter that came along several years later named Tammy. The relationship between Patrick and Sandra wasn't always perfect, and the couple ended up getting a divorce in 1976, but they were able to co-parent really effectively, and they remained respectful and friendly towards each other even after they split up. They shared custody of their three girls, and they had a schedule where the kids spent six months with Sandra and then would spend six months with their dad. But in the summer of 1982, when the twins were 12 and the youngest daughter was seven, the girls decided that they didn't want to change homes every six months anymore, and they told Sandra and Patrick that they wanted to try spending a year with each parent before switching back because these frequent moves were really getting to be too much for them. Sandra was an amazing and loving mom, and this request was a little heartbreaking to her, but she wanted her girls to be happy, so she agreed to this new arrangement. She really missed her kids while they were away with Patrick, but since she had a whole year to get through, she decided to move in with a couple of roommates, and her daughters were able to call and visit her regularly. One thing Sandra loved to do was go out dancing, and she often went with her roommates, but she also really had no qualms about going out by herself if nobody wanted to go out with her. And that's what happened on the night of December 9th, 1982. According to statements that were later given to the police by Sandra's roommates, the three of them had plans to go out dancing that night, and Sandra was borrowing a friend's car so that she could drive them all there. Sandra had picked up the car, and she was on her way home to get ready for this night out on the town and to pick up her roommates, and on her way, she spotted a hitchhiker on the side of the road and stopped to offer him a ride. But instead of taking the man directly to his own home, she went to her apartment so that she could change clothes and, of course, as I said, pick up her roommates so they can go out. So she told this man that she would take him home on their way to the bar. When Sandra and the hitchhiker arrived at her apartment, she said he could come inside while she got ready to go out, so the two roommates that were living there got to see and talk to him themselves. They later described him to police as being a black male, short in height, bow-legged, and having what they considered to be unusually large eyes. Sandra ended up taking quite a while to get dressed and get ready to head out, and by the time she made her way out of the room, her two roommates had gotten tired and said they no longer wanted to go out dancing, but Sandra still wanted to go. She told her roommates that she was going to drop off this hitchhiker at his house and then head to the nightclub downtown. And this would be the last time that they saw Sandra alive. Later that evening, at around 9.30 or 10 p.m., Sandra was seen at a quick stop gas station. According to the clerk inside, Sandra paid for the gas while an unknown male sat in the car. When Sandra's parents were unable to reach her, they contacted Patrick and the girls to ask if they'd heard anything. When the kids said that they hadn't heard from their mom in a few days, Sandra's parents officially reported her missing on December 11, 1982. As Christmas inched closer, Sandra's daughters really struggled with not knowing where their mom was. Up to this point, it had been extremely unlikely that Sandra would ever abandon her girls. She had always really been the best mom to them, and they had a really great relationship with her. But in their child minds, the only thing they could think was that Sandra just didn't want to see them anymore, and she had left them, which is the most horrifying part 
one of the most so horrifying terrible. parts in the story. So terrible. Now these poor little girls think their mom just didn't love them anymore and left. And oh, that is just like a whole nother level on this entire story to me. So more time passed and there was still no word from Sandra. But in February of 1983, the car that she was driving that night was found abandoned at a nearby Hyatt hotel with the doors unlocked and the keys still in the ignition. But otherwise, there were no clues or any sign as to what happened to Sandra. A cigarette butt was found in the car and that was also taken into evidence. But without a body or any evidence that a crime had even been committed, there wasn't much that authorities could really do. And Sandra's disappearance turned into a cold case that wouldn't have a break until 33 years later when her remains were found in the backyard of Laura and Richard Cott. And we're going to get right back into what happened next after a quick break to hear a word from this week's sponsors. Whether we like it or not, having cell phones is a part of our life. It's always with you and you literally won't even leave the house without it. So I think that's why a lot of us have been okay paying these higher big wireless providers for years. But what if you could have excellent coverage, keep your phone number and still save a ton of money? Well, Mint Mobile is here to help you do just that. Mint Mobile makes it so easy to cut your wireless bill down to just $15 a month. Mint Mobile allows you to choose your plan of 3, 8, or 12 gigabytes of 4G LTE, so you aren't paying for unlimited data you'll never be able to use. Mint Mobile can do this because they are online. That's right, there's no retail locations or overhead, so you get to keep the premium coverage you're used to for a fraction of the cost. If you have kids, you know you spend a ton of time in the car driving them around from place to place. So I wanted to save money on my phone plan, but to be quite honest, I also need to make sure that I still have great coverage because have you ever had a kid who's watching a YouTube video that's glitching out in the backseat? It should truly be considered a form of torture. Mint Mobile passes the kids watching YouTube in the backseat test with flying colors, plus it's a percentage of what I was paying before. To get your new wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month and get the plan shipped to your door for free, go to mintmobile.com slash moms. That's mintmobile.com slash moms. Cut your wireless bill down to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash moms. We are fully into summertime and the kids have been home for a while and someone is always needing something or many somethings. And as a mom, one something that's really hard to do is to take care of myself. Luckily, Noom makes that easy. Noom is a habit-changing solution that helps its users develop a new relationship with food through personalized courses. Noom only asks for 10 minutes a day, which even in between cleaning the kitchen so I can just cook the next meal, I can still make time to do. What I really love about Noom is the amazing community. It's nice to have access to my goal specialist or the Noom community just to check in or get some encouragement on days when I'm feeling less than motivated. But we're not talking about a diet here because Noom is not a diet, but it's a healthy and easy to stick to way of life that teaches you rather than telling you what to do. This year, I've really wanted to develop a healthier relationship with food. But what does that really mean? Well, for me, it means that I just want to learn how to make healthy choices more easily and to understand why I think about food the way I do. My goal in this isn't really a weight-specific one. It's just to feel better, and feeling better means I'm more present in my life and with my family. You don't have to change it all in one day. Small steps make big progress. Sign up for your trial today at noomnoom.com slash moms. Visit noom.com slash moms to start your trial today. That's noom.com slash moms. And now back to the episode. Before the break, we had just explained how Sandra had been found in the backyard of Laura and Richard Cott, and 
it was really this whole big investigation that was really hard to kind of navigate because this crime had taken place so many years ago. So the investigators really did have their work cut out for them. The day after Sandra's remains were discovered, police contacted one of her daughters to let them know what they had found. The women who were now in their early 40s and the youngest was in her late 30s were, of course, devastated to have to relive their mother's disappearance all over again. But they were happy to have some kind of answers and to know that their mom hadn't just abandoned them. They wanted to do whatever was necessary to help the police find out who was responsible for her murder. A homicide investigation was officially opened, and as the investigators began pouring through the file on Sandra, they made an unexpected discovery. One of the commanders with the police department had seen the information that the officers were working with, and incredibly, he recalled that he had worked on a different homicide that happened at the same address where Sandra's remains were found. And this is just one of those things in crime stories that blows my mind every single time it comes up when you have just a random person that still works for the same police department that many years later and happens to be like, oh, actually, I remember working another homicide at this house. Right. Like, that's so crazy because if that guy didn't work there anymore, I mean, no, this story could have turned out completely different. It's always yeah. just mind blowing to me how just one little thing or one person can really make or break an investigation like this. Yeah. The murder that that commander was thinking of was one that happened in early 1983, just a few months after Sandra was reported missing. And the victim in that case was a 30-year-old woman named Suzanne K. Nixon. Suzanne was born on January 17, 1953 in Omaha, Nebraska, and she attended Pacific Grove High School as well as Cotty College in Nevada, Missouri, and she worked as a hairdresser in Monterey, California. Suzanne lived in Pebble Beach with some of her family, and she had two brothers and two sisters that she was very close with. Suzanne's mom, Ann Nixon Ball, was once a Republican candidate for the 16th Congressional District. One of her sisters described her as a beautiful, outgoing woman who was really friendly and sociable and always thought the best of everyone that she met. And she was just truly a really delightful person to be around and made life fun. On the evening of March 3rd, 1983, Suzanne told her mom that she was going to meet some friends for pizza, and she was also going to be meeting a guy that she knew to collect $50 that she lent to him and he owed her back. So she left home around 5 p.m., but she never came back. After nearly 30 hours had passed, Suzanne's mother finally contacted the police to report her missing. Detectives got to work right away with retracing Suzanne's steps and contacting the friends that she was out with that night. They learned that Suzanne was last leaving with a friend of hers named Alfred Powell. Alfred was 27 years old at this time, and investigators learned that he was living in the garage of an elderly woman. He had an arrangement with this woman where he would do the gardening and landscaping and other odd jobs around the house for her in return for getting to live in the garage rent-free. Officers went to this address where Alfred lived and knocked on the door to the garage, hoping to make contact with him and simply ask him about the last time he saw Suzanne. To their surprise, Alfred opened the door and invited them in. He had a friendly demeanor and he was very cooperative at first, but the officers were puzzled about Alfred's living conditions. This garage that he was staying in was about 20 by 30 feet, had no running water, no bathroom, and no lights. It was clear to the officers that this was a man who was down on his luck and living in squalor, but that didn't necessarily mean that he was a criminal, so the officers continued to chat with him and ask questions about what he had been doing the last couple of days. 
Alfred told them that he had seen Suzanne Nixon the previous night at the pizza parlor, and he admitted that she had given him a ride home at around 1.30 in the morning. He claimed that after she dropped him off, she drove away, and that was the last time he saw her. But while the officers were talking to Alfred and looking around the room with their flashlights, they noticed some alarming details. It appeared that Alfred actually had bloodstains on his shirt, and they noticed that a clock radio in the garage also looked as though it had blood on it. And so this is obviously a dark garage, and so it's not like all lights are on and you can see just blood all over his shirt or anything. They're just kind of looking around, casually speaking to him with a flashlight and just kind of catching, it's catching their eye as they're going through, which is crazy in itself that they're even able to see anything really (laughs) in this, you know, blacked out garage. So Alfred, of course, had an explanation for this blood. He told the officers that he had some kind of run-in with a raccoon that had tried to get into his garage. And then suddenly, really while he's explaining this, the mood kind of changes. And Alfred said something really alarming. He told the police that he got bloody because he had smashed this raccoon in the head and then picked it up and strangled it with his bare hands before skinning it and eating it. This is a lot of information to give the police. That would just be very like, okay, all right. I feel like you could land on almost any other story than that. Like I cut my arm, I cut my leg. That's from a few weeks ago. Murdering a raccoon and strangling it and skinning it and eating it is a lot to take in. It's a lot to give at, you know, meeting number one. For sure. So almost immediately, these officers really rejected that version of events. They did not believe that at all. Because for one thing, raccoons are absolutely vicious animals when they're provoked. And the investigators really just did not believe that Alfred could have strangled one to death without having his own hands and arms torn to shreds. And Alfred didn't really have any visible injuries to support the idea that he got into a fight with a wild animal in the close quarters of this room. So the officers bagged the clock radio as evidence and asked Alfred if he'd be willing to discuss things further at the police station. And he agreed. Since there was no DNA testing back in the 80s, police couldn't test the blood against the DNA of Suzanne, but they could run a quick test to determine if the blood was from an animal or from a human. Not surprisingly, the test came back and showed that it was in fact human blood. Once it was confirmed that the blood came from a person, Alfred was placed under arrest on suspicion of murder while police returned to the property to look around some more. When they had first made contact with Alfred, it was around 5.30 in the evening, and when they returned to the property the second time, it was about 9.30 at night. A more thorough search of the property led to a grim discovery that confirmed their fears. The body of Suzanne Nixon was found in a tool shed off to the side of the garage, and it was covered up by bags and clothing. Her body was taken to Mission Mortuary for an autopsy to be performed. It was determined that Suzanne was killed sometime in the previous 24 hours and that her cause of death was massive head injuries. At this point, it was clear that Alfred was responsible for Suzanne's murder, but police had no idea what his motive could have possibly been. They theorized that when Suzanne dropped Alfred off that night, he managed to convince her to come inside the garage where he beat her over the head with this clock radio and then strangled her to death. One officer thought that when Alfred was telling his raccoon story, he was really telling them exactly how he had murdered Suzanne. And that has to just be just a terrible realization to kind of put that together and and to think that 
he boldly just said those things, knowing that that's actually what he did. A couple of days after Suzanne was last seen, police also found her vehicle abandoned with the key still in the ignition, parked near a railroad track just a few miles away from Alfred's home. And this, of course, is very similar to what happened in the case of Sandra when she was missing. Her car was found abandoned with the keys in the ignition. So already we're starting to see some similarities between these two cases. Right. Later in 1983, Alfred was sent to trial for the murder of Suzanne Nixon, and he was eventually sentenced to 15 years to life in prison for the crime. So when 2015 rolled around and the remains of Sandra Steppen were discovered, Alfred was already behind bars. As the investigation into Sandra's death continued, police learned another shocking piece of the puzzle. According to the missing persons file back in December of 1982, when Sandra first went missing, police actually showed a lineup of photos to Sandra's roommates. It was noted in the file that they actually did identify Alfred Powell as the hitchhiker that Sandra had brought to their home on the last night she was seen alive. Officers even questioned Alfred at the time about Sandra's whereabouts, but whenever he said he didn't know anything, police had to back off. At the time, there was no evidence that a crime had even taken place, so investigators noted that Alfred was questioned and then let go. It's now thought that he went on to murder Suzanne just a few months later. When police discovered Suzanne's body in the tool shed, they had no idea that Sandra's body was also buried in that same backyard. Sandra's daughters found absolutely no comfort in the fact that the man who was likely responsible for their mother's death was already sitting in jail. They wanted their own justice for this incredible woman who was ripped from their lives. They wanted new murder charges brought on him. And I find it fascinating that this poor lady who let him live in her garage has people buried in her backyard and she has no idea that this is even going on. That's crazy. Yeah, it's terrible. Unfortunately, since it had been over 30 years since the murder happened, there was still a lot of work to do when it came to proving that Alfred was Sandra's killer. Investigators started digging deep into Alfred's past and learning everything they possibly could about him, and what they found was that he had quite a history with violence against women. And we're going to get into more of the story after one last break to hear word from this week's sponsors. If you're gearing up to take a trip this summer, we know you have a lot to think about and plan. The logistics of traveling can be a headache, but packing and carrying your luggage around doesn't have to be, thanks to Away Luggage. Away makes packing a breeze with their amazing interior organization system that includes a built-in compression pad that actually helps you pack more in your suitcase, plus has a hidden and removable laundry bag so you can separate your dirty clothes, which means less laundry for you when you get home. Not only is your luggage easy to pack, it's easy to roll around thanks to four 360-degree spinner wheels that guarantee the smoothest roll even in the busiest airports and stations. It's seriously effortless. Plus, I really love how durable my away luggage is. My kids, especially my son, are just really rough on things. With my old suitcases, I have had to hold my breath anytime he wants to roll it around. But away is actually designed to last a lifetime. It has durable exteriors that can withstand even the roughest of baggage handlers or kids who will literally run your suitcase into every wall in your home. Plus, if your kid finally gets the best of your luggage and any part of it breaks, Away's standout customer service team will arrange to have it fixed or replaced. If you're still waiting for a reason to try it, Away also gives you 100 days to take the product on the road so you can try it, travel with it, and if you still aren't happy with it, you can return any non-personalized item for a full refund during that period. 
No ifs, ands, or asterisks. Start your risk-free 100-day trial and shop the entire Away lineup of travel essentials, including their best-selling suitcases at awaytravel.com moms. The URL is case-sensitive, so please type it out in all lowercase letters. Again, start your risk-free 100-day trial and shop the entire Away lineup of travel essentials, including their best-selling suitcases at awaytravel.com moms. I'm a big believer in therapy, so I decided to reach out for a little help, which isn't always so easy to do. As a stay-at-home mom, I knew there was an extra layer of difficulty because I'm not able to attend traditional appointments in an office every week. Luckily, BetterHelp is there and provides online counseling sessions. When I signed up with BetterHelp, I answered a few questions and then they reviewed my needs and wants and matched me with a great therapist in less than 24 hours, a therapist who just happens to be a reality TV fan. She's been really great at helping me navigate through some stuff I've put on the back burner and dealing with stuff I'd like to ignore, but I know it's not healthy to do so. I love that everything I share is confidential and my counselor is professional and kind throughout our interactions. Appointments with your counselor can be made by phone call or video calls plus messaging. And BetterHelp can help you match with a counselor who specializes in things like depression, stress, anxiety, relationships, trauma, and more. Plus, if you decide you want to change counselors, you can do so at any time with no additional cost. Financial aid is also available to those who qualify. We want you to start living a happier life today. As a listener, you'll get 10% off your first month by visiting betterhelp.com slash moms. Join over 800,000 people taking charge of their mental health. Again, that's betterhelp.com slash moms. And now back to the episode. Before the break, we were just getting ready to talk about the details of Alfred Powell's past that investigators learned while looking into the murder of Sandra Steppen. So before we get into the details of what the investigators found, I just want to remind everyone that this was a completely different time than what we're living in today. And the way violence and abuse against women was handled in the 70s and 80s was really nothing like the way we handled those types of allegations in 2020. So investigators found evidence that there had been at least two other women and possibly more who had come forward with rape allegations against Alfred in the years prior to these murders. In each of these cases, Alfred simply told officials that he engaged in consensual sex with these women and the courts sided with him each time and these cases were never prosecuted due to what they said was no evidence of a sexual assault. Typically, Alfred would choose victims that were of a poor socioeconomic status, and he believed that these were women who wouldn't be taken seriously because of their own backgrounds. But police were actually able to uncover a new victim that they did not previously know about. They convinced her to talk to them and tell her story about her experience with Alfred Powell. So this woman alleged that there was one night that she was at a party at her brother's house, and Alfred was also there. She said he kind of just showed up and crashed the party. Later that night, when the woman was leaving, she was going to walk home, and she said that Alfred followed her. Out of nowhere, he suddenly just ran up to her, jumped on her back, and began strangling her with no warning at all. So this woman says that she fought for her life, and she truly believed that she was going to be killed that night, and there was nothing she could do to stop it. But thankfully, a passerby saw this struggle taking place and dialed 911 for her. By the time the police arrived, the attack had ended and Alfred was laying on the ground pretending to be asleep. And when the officers kind of woke him up or, you know, 
thought they were waking him up to question him, he told the officers that this woman just made up the entire thing and that he had just been laying there sleeping this entire time. That's such a bizarre defense to yeah. like pretend to be asleep. I don't I don't to even not understand just it. Run away? Like yeah. I, that's super weird to just stay there and pretend like you're sleeping. I've right. definitely never heard of that happening ever other than this. This is yeah. super weird. So that woman sadly never made a formal police report and there were never any charges filed. So the more police dug into Alfred's life, the more they found. It was starting to become very clear that there was a history and a pattern of predatory behavior against women, but this was just more circumstantial evidence in their case against Alfred. The prosecutors that were working to build a murder case against Alfred for the killing of Sandra Steppen wanted to try and track down his previous victims and hopefully convince them to testify against Alfred at trial. At this point, Alfred had been in prison for 32 years. Beginning in 1998, after he had spent those first 15 years behind bars, he attempted at being paroled. At one of his hearings, the parole board specifically asked him what he thought about women, and he responded that he believed women existed merely for his sexual desires. So you can basically in your mind see a stamp going denied, (laughs) yeah, (laughs) like immediately. So obviously this blatant admission confirmed what investigators and prosecutors already believed, that Alfred was a serial rapist and murderer and that he was a dangerous man who should remain behind bars. He was denied all attempts at being paroled over the 32 years he was there. Around the time that Sanders' remains were discovered... Alfred celebrated his 60th birthday, and in a scary turn of events, the state of California actually passed a bill that said if a prisoner had not been charged with first-degree murder, they could potentially be put up for parole and released from prison. So the race was on to get a murder case to trial before this new bill worked in Alfred's favor and he was set free. Prosecutors even believed that if they didn't get a second murder conviction for the death of Sandra, then it was a very real possibility that Alfred would be released from prison and be able to harm more women. The prosecutors knew their case was mostly circumstantial, but they felt that there was enough circumstantial evidence to support the theory that he was the one to murder Sandra. And we see all the time where cases, there's a lot of cases that are purely circumstantial and they still manage to get a conviction because sometimes it's just so obvious, even without any of that hard, you know, concrete evidence to tie a person to a crime. So just to recap the evidence that they did have against Alfred... Sandra's remains were found in the same clothing that her roommates reported her wearing the last night that she was seen alive. Alfred was confirmed to have been one of the very last people to be in her company, and her remains were found on the property where he was living at the time of her death. Alfred was not cooperative with the police and would not speak to them about the case at all. But in June of 2016, it was announced that he would stand trial for this murder. His trial was set to begin on January 8th, 2017, but Alfred instead decided to plead guilty to the murder just days before it went to trial. Later that month, he appeared before Judge Julie Culver to be sentenced, and he was given another term of 15 years to life with no credit to time served for his previous murder conviction. Judge Culver stated that in the many cases she had presided over and sentenced, she had never met anyone as depraved as Alfred Powell. Her sentence would ensure that he would never be released from prison. And something interesting I found while I was doing the research on this case, there are some sources that suggested that Alfred was actually suspected in two other cases. One of them was another murder and the other was a missing persons case. And these both took place in Monterey around the same time that Sandra and Suzanne were killed. 
there was a woman named Sheila Chavez who was 18 years old and she was a high school student in Monterey and she was last seen at a bus stop in 1982. Her body was later found in a ravine behind the library and she had been beaten and strangled to death. There was a lot of similarities between her death and these other two. So I couldn't really find anything more than that. And it doesn't appear that he had any charges brought on him for those, but he is considered a person of interest in that case, which I find really interesting. And hopefully they will be able to tie him to that so that that victim's family is able to get the closure that they need. Right. As far as what happened in the case of Laura and Richard Cott, well, they were very upset about the news that two women had been murdered in the home they had lived in for so many years. And of course, even more horrified that Sanders' remains had been there the entire time. The couple ended up filing a lawsuit against the realtor that sold them the home and the previous owner, who was a man named Sean Ford. They alleged that Mr. Ford and the real estate agent knew about the property's dark past and failed to disclose it. Also named as defendants in the lawsuit were the owners that were prior to Sean Ford, Anthony and Michelle McCulloch. Sean Ford's attorney argued that he was unaware of the home's history since he was just a kid in the early 80s and had no way of knowing about the murders that took place at the home. But the Cots maintained that the realtor knew and intentionally kept it from them. The couple's attorney said that their lives had been miserable ever since and that people are constantly coming by to get a glimpse of the quote-unquote murder house. In the lawsuit, they asked for damages because they're afraid they'll never be able to sell the property now, and they're also concerned that there could possibly be more victims buried in their backyard. So Mandy said that she wasn't able to find any updates on whether or not they won the lawsuit, but thinks that they probably did since California law states that violent deaths must be disclosed to potential home buyers. That's a really interesting thing in this story, too, that they're going after not only the last owners, but the owners before that. And really, I just don't think it's that crazy to think that nobody really knew. Maybe the first owners did and didn't say anything. Or, you know, you just don't know how far back it went. But I don't think it's that crazy to not know. Yeah. So I would think that the elderly woman that Alfred, you know, was getting this renting. Well, he wasn't renting. But when she was owning the home, I would assume that the person who got the house right after her would have been notified that that there was a murder that had taken place there. But I mean, I do kind of find it hard to believe that the realtors like didn't know. I mean, I don't know. I didn't. I don't think it's that crazy for them to have not known. It's, I mean, I don't think my husband's done real estate before and I don't, I know he's never looked up like, has anyone been, been murdered in this house or anything like that? So unless you're searching that, like Googling it and newspaper articles come up, I don't think you would see it. You know, there's no right. real reason you would know it. Now, if you intentionally left it from somebody, I can understand them being upset, but I wonder what they had to go on to think that. They did intentionally know that. The first lady should have known and should have told somebody. But after that, I think it's kind of murky to think that everyone's. But I don't know. Who knows? And and, and since I didn't find out whether they won the lawsuit or not, I mean, maybe they didn't. Maybe maybe a judge ended up ruling, like, just like you said, like, there's no way of proving that anyone did them wrong or didn't, you know, didn't tell them something intentionally. But I understand where they're coming from, too. You know, now they're they're in this home and that would just be just terrible and horrifying. And I had read some some interviews with the couple where they said like they really wanted to move out of the house, but like they couldn't, you know, unless they could sell it. And now that all, now that it is so highly publicized, they didn't think they were ever going to be able to sell it and they didn't really want to live there anymore. And it's like, I do feel bad for them because what do you do in that case? You know, there's not really much you can do and you just are, I mean, it's your home, you own it, you've lived there forever. It's just, 
yeah. a terrible, terrible situation all around. I don't blame them. I get that. Um, I did find when I was kind of looking through that stuff, there's a website called diedinhouse.com. And apparently you can search on there and see if there's been any records of deaths like um, more dark or otherwise like meth deaths, all kinds of stuff. You have to pay. So I'm not like trying to promote it or anything, but I did think it was interesting. If that's something that you're concerned with, there is a website you can go and search before you buy your home. So there you go. If this story freaked you out too much, there's a way to (laughs) to look into it. I just don't know if I would want to know, though. Like, you yeah, know, I, I wouldn't um, search my house. I thought about I it. I wouldn't and I was either. Like, I'm not doing it. No, 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 no. I just wouldn't want to know. If I don't already know, I've been living in my house for this long. I am just fine not finding out about anything crazy yeah. that happened here <laughs> like, before. So I'm not going to look it up now. Well, and you'd have to tell people because at that point you would know. So then you would not be disclosing. I don't know anything now. But if I look it up and somebody's died there and then I go to sell my house and I know that and I don't disclose it, you could sue me. I mean, not in Florida. Our laws are a little bit different, but of if you, they are. <laughs> it's better to not know in this situation, I think. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. For sure. So that was a very bizarre story. I know it was a little bit of a shorter one this week. There was not a ton of information about this case just because I think it was so long ago that some of these things happened, but I thought it was a really crazy and bizarre story that I was happy that we could share on the podcast. Yeah. So. The daughters just broke my heart. Sorry. That whole thing with thinking their mom left them and I don't know. Just That that's was just, totally the worst part. Mm, I mean, all of it's terrible, obviously the murder, but if you go aside from the murder, the next worst part I would say is the daughters thinking my mom didn't love me and she left me and not knowing that for years and years and years that I don't know how that would be so hard to recover from. So that broke my heart. So I'm glad for them that they were able to get some answers, even though obviously no answer in this case would have been really a great one. Right. Yeah. There was uh, something that we watched on this case on Amazon and they had the daughters on being interviewed. And one of them said, you know, they were kids and no one ever really told them that that their mom being dead was even a possibility. So they never really, that's kind of, you know, the only other explanation they had is that she just left. And yeah, I agree. Just so awful and so terrible. But of course you can understand like when they're kids, of course the adults in their world aren't going to say, well, you know, she might not be alive. They're not, you're not going to say that to her daughters. So, you know, it makes sense why they, why they weren't told that that was an option or a possibility. But yeah, just the alternative of having them think, you know, that that their mom just left them is just heartbreaking. All the way around. Yeah. Okay. Melissa, are we going to do last thing before we go or what? (laughs) No, now what are you going to (laughs) do? Well, we are, and we have some really silly Uh, nonsensical questions, just like always. There's no surprise there. I asked in our Facebook group if anybody had any suggestions and we got a few good ones. And I just am really excited about this first one. So somebody suggested that we rank our favorite sub shops from worst to best, I guess. So we have six different sub shops that we are going to rank and we're going to see how we compare to each other. I have a feeling we're going to probably be pretty similar. Maybe. Maybe. We'll see. Maybe. It depends on what your number six is because that's where it all falls apart for me. Do you want to start off? Sure. So my number six, worst of the worst, is obviously Subway. And I 
hope that we can all agree that Subway is the actual worst. No, you're wrong. I'm sorry. Quiznos is garbage. If this was a quiz, the answer would be no. It's terrible. Oh. <laughs> I hate it so much. And I know that's like a very controversial statement. I've just never gone there and gotten one sub and been like, this was good. Did it fill me up? Sure. Did I enjoy it? Not really. <laughs> yeah, well, Quiznos is my number five, so okay. <laughs> I, I have it ranked pretty low on my list as well. But yeah, I agree. And I didn't. I don't even know where Quiznos is. Are they still in business? So the only one I can think of is one that's next to the Amscot in Orlando near where Casey Anthony's car was dumped. <laughs> like That's oh, what I know I that whole area about. <laughs> yeah, I used to work over on that side of town, so I knew all of like the Casey Anthony hotspots over there. But yeah, there was a Quiznos there. So that's the only one I know of. So my number five, yours is Quiznos. Mine is Jimmy John's because freaky no. fresh does not mean freaky good. I don't think it's no. great. It's boring. Oh gosh. Bland. No. Mm -mm. No way. Terrible. What's good about no. it? Name, name the, what are the great I mean, literally qualities? everything. The bread That's is amazing. An and I love the sauce they put on it. I just love to eat a Jimmy John's sub like dripping with mayonnaise and oil and vinegar and delicious bread that was just cooked that day. I mean, how is that not, how is that not the best? So maybe I'm confusing it with another place, but I'm pretty sure it was Jimmy John's <laughs> that I've had like twice. And I'm always like, I don't really get, I just don't get it. It's very much uh, Aaron from the office whenever she meets Holly and she's like, I don't get it. I just don't get it. That's how I feel about Jimmy John's. I know I should, but okay. I never want it. <laughs> All right. I'm going to tell you the whole rest of my list and then Go you ahead. can bite me if you want. All right. So sure. for number, my number four, I have Firehouse. Number three, Jersey Mike's. Two, Jimmy John's. And number one, I'm from Florida and we love our public subs here. And that is, of course, my number one. If I'm going to eat a sub, I'm just going to go to Publix and get a sub. Okay. So your number one, solid. Great work. My number four is Subway. I know you ranked it worse, but oh gosh, Jimmy John's. Jersey Mike's, we both had as number three. You can't even get condiments there. You have to like ask for them specifically. It's not even like, do you want this? They just assume you want a dry sandwich. Not interesting. <laughs> but Firehouse is so good, Mandy. Hook and ladder, so good. It's okay. I'm just not really a hot sub person. See, I think I'm not maybe either. That's my problem. I'm not either, but only with a hook and ladder. And then I put banana peppers on it. Oh, it's so good. I take the tomatoes off because, you know, I don't need that ruining my food. And it's delicious. It's my favorite thing in the entire world, besides public subs, because they are number one. So I think our lists were pretty good, minus your quiz yeah. situation. Yeah. Okay. So we have one more thing. We actually had two more things, but I think this is going on very long. Um, so I want to save the third thing for next week. But second, last thing before we go question, favorite chore and least favorite chore okay. around your home. So hmm. my favorite thing is really any kind of like organization, which doesn't sound like me, but I like the things you put together and everything looks nice and neat. Because if you just clean a room, it's just immediately messed up by the next person that goes into it. But if you organize a closet, it takes a while for somebody to ruin it. It takes like several <laughs> weeks for it to get messed up. So I think like organizing a closet, like I just did my kids' closets, like kind of redid them. And that was like the most satisfying thing in the world because all the baskets have a place to – everything just has a place. And it just was amazing until they got in there a week later and ruined it. But for that week, I felt pretty good. Wow. Okay. <laughs> I'm very passionate about this. What about you? Uh, so I really don't have a favorite because they're chores, duh. I don't mind cleaning the bathrooms at my house hmm. because I feel like it's actually one of those things where when you finish it, 
it's satisfying and it's yeah. like, it's pretty easy and quick to do. You know, it doesn't take a very long time, but then I'm always just so happy that it's clean and done yeah. and I love being in a clean bathroom. So I don't mind doing that. That's fine. I also am okay with sweeping and mopping because I use that time to either listen to a podcast or listen to music and ignore everyone else in my house with headphones in while I sweep and yeah. mop the floors. So that's fine. Least favorite. Definitely a toss up between folding laundry and doing dishes by hand. I hate both of those things with a passion and I will put them off so long that I just make it worse for myself because then I have like five baskets of laundry to fold instead of just having one basket of laundry to fold. And I should probably get better about that. But yeah, that's definitely my least favorite. But see, that's one of those things where I feel really good when I get it done. Like I don't want to and then I have like four baskets and then I'm putting them up and hanging them up and I have my piles and I feel nice and organized and I put them up and I'm like, wow, this is incredible. And then somebody yeah. <laughs> gets dirt on their clothes and I'm like, what is wrong with you? You're yeah, wearing these yeah, clothes yeah. tonight. My least favorite though is unloading the dishwasher. There are probably six things in my dishwasher that are, I call year round dishes because yes, I yeah, just they don't just know where there. they go. Yeah. And they just stay in there. I have those like corn holder things. They don't have a place in my kitchen. They just belong in the dishwasher for the two times every summer that we eat corn on the cob. So that's where they belong. So I hate unloading dishwasher. I would rather, I would rather wash dishes by hand than unload the dishwasher. That's how much I hate it. Yeah. Well, actually I've done. Okay. So this is this is like taking laziness to a whole new level here, but nothing makes me rage more than when I want to load the dishwasher and I open it and it's got clean dishes in it. Mm -hmm. And so it's just like, it becomes a whole thing. I don't want to have to unload and then load and all that. So I will just leave the clean ones there and just hand wash the few that are in the sink so I that I don't me. have to unload the whole dishwasher. And yeah, I'm sure there are people who are like, what are you doing, Mandy? Just unload the dishwasher. But I refuse. I refuse. If I wasn't planning on doing that, I'm just not going to. Right. You know, if I if, if I wasn't already planning on getting that involved in the kitchen, then I'm just going to pretend it's not there and leave it for the next day. Oh, that's like my husband. He'll wash clothes and then put them – he'll just wash clothes and I'm like, okay, but you have to move them to the dryer and then pull them out. He's like, oh. I'm like, well, because now I have to dry your clothes and I have to pull them out and I have to do something with them or I can give them to you to never do something with. But like, I didn't want that as part of my chore today. I didn't right. want to do this. Like, <laughs> don't start it unless I'm going to finish it or you're going to finish it, which you're not. So just ask me, run it by me first. I'll let you know if I'm yeah. up for it or not. But I hate seeing it in there. And I'm like, son of a gun. I did not that's ask That's always this. my, yeah, that's always like the best thing. And I, my husband loves to do that too, where he'd be like, oh, I started a load of laundry. And I'm like, why did you do that? Like, I didn't ask you to. And now that means I have to finish the yeah, load of laundry. Yeah, now I have to fold them. Thank you so much. You added a new <laughs> yeah. chore I wasn't expecting today. I get it. Yeah. yeah, there you go. So I think that is enough for this week. What do you think, Melissa? Is that enough for you? Have you had enough? <laughs> I've had enough. I can only imagine what listening to this would be like. So yes, I'm done. <laughs> All right, guys. Well, we will be back next week at the same time, same place in a new story. Have a great week. Bye. Thanks so much for listening to the Moms and Murder podcast. Make sure to check back with us next week for a new episode. You can also find us at momsandmurder.com where you can connect with us via social media. Please make sure you subscribe and give us five stars because giving us four stars would be a crime. Thanks so much.